Genesis 2, starting at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is exciting to preach on this passage this morning because there is so much at stake. There's so much at stake in this matter, and we can be thankful today that God teaches so clearly about his design for our lives and even his design for our bodies. There's so much at stake here, and we know that in our culture, don't we, that there is confusion, that there is tension, that there is anxiety, that there is a struggle over the truth. What is the truth about God's design for male and female and for marriage? Why does Satan attack this matter so much? Why is there so much confusion about this particular matter of male and female and this institution of marriage? We can know that Satan attacks this so much because it's so important. Because there, again, is so much at stake. Because it matters so much to how we think about ourselves and how male and female are called by God to relate to one another. As Christians, we might be tempted to read the passage and to kind of prepare for a sermon with a sense of anxiety or maybe even a sense of aggressiveness because this is one of those hot-button topics in our culture today. These truths from Genesis 2 are so widely rejected in our culture, and so sometimes as Christians, I've heard different talks over the course of the last few years that can almost bring out these passages kind of as a weapon against people. But brothers and sisters, I would call upon you to receive these words with a sense of gratitude, thankfulness, that God gives clear teaching here for us, his people, and even for all humanity. Be grateful for this passage today if you are married. Be grateful for this passage today if you are not married. As we pay close attention to God's word, we will be thankful. I'm confident for the clarity and the power by which he has taught us about who we were designed to be. The passage develops in four, in four parts, and that will form the, the four parts of the message this morning. Normally, 
The Reformed Sermon is a three-part sermon. You might have heard that term before. I hope you would extend to me the, the charity to include an extra part in, in today's message based on the structure of the passage itself. The first part that we find is, is right away in the text in the first part of Genesis 2, verse 18. It is not good that the man should be alone. That it was the Lord's design to create Adam first and he breathes life into the first man, Adam. Um, this passage, including Genesis 1 as well, teaches us that man did not evolve from primates, but was miraculously created by God. That is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith, that man was made in the image of God, separate from the rest of creation, a special part of God's creation, and the way that God created Adam is sort of fleshed out, you might say, a little bit more in Genesis 2 than it was in Genesis chapter 1. So what did God do? He, he creates Adam, and then he gives Adam some time on his own. We don't know how long, but it's clear there that Adam did a little bit of work in naming the animals and um, kind of inspecting the creation around him a little bit, and it was God's design to create him in that way. So even though Adam has all the food he needs, even though Adam has important work to do in the garden, he is alone. And the passage says, and this is not good for him. My favorite show on TV right now is called Alone. <clears throat> Some of you might have seen this show. I, I think it's on cable. I catch it on uh, Antenna TV. But <clears throat> the show is about survival. And it's, uh, it's a reality TV show. The premise of the show is simple. Again, it's called Alone, which would give you a good idea of what you'll be seeing. It's people who live alone out in the wilderness, and the whole point of the show is to survive as long as you can by yourself in an inhospitable environment. Some episodes happen on Vancouver Island or Great Slave Lake, which is in the Arctic Circle or in Patagonia and Argentina. And the, the question for each person is how long can they survive with just a few tools and some knowledge of how to catch fish, how to build a shelter, how to keep from going insane. And so it's a competition, and the winner gets a vast amount of money if they can survive by themselves without you know, tapping out and, and calling the, uh, the emergency helicopter or boat to come and get them and retrieve them from the wilderness. Now, it's interesting what reasons some people give for giving up on the show. Sometimes people get injured or are just so hungry that they give up. But there have been quite a few contestants in the course of this show alone that give up because of their social needs, because they're missing their family so much, because they know that, that there is some community that they, all they need to do to have access to is to, to hit the button and call the boat or helicopter and it will come and pick them up and they'll get to see their wife and children or their friends again. That's a common reason why people give up. Even, um, even though they're, they're hungry or they're in dangerous situations, the greatest need that they're still feeling is that, that sense of need for community. And so the application of, of this principle is quite simple. It is not good for you to be alone all the time. It is good for a person to be alone sometimes, as Christ himself would depart from the crowds and even from his disciples 
to be alone on a mountainside or to go and into times of prayer. It's good for us to be alone sometimes, but according to this passage and really according to common sense as well, it is not good for you to be alone all the time. We need community. You are not on a reality show to determine how long you can survive alone. <laughs> and so you don't need to, to try to tough it out, to grieve alone, to face temptation and sin by yourself, to sort of be proud of how you can get through things, you know, just by how hard you can work or just by trusting in yourself. Brothers and sisters, it is not good that you are alone all the time. Don't fight your grief alone. Don't battle against your sins and temptations alone. Even the most introverted person needs brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside you if you're going to thrive in this life and follow God well. So this isn't a command for every person to be married today, but it is a recognition that God has designed us to live in community. We can say, and we need this teaching, it is not good that you would be alone all the time. And so, before the Lord creates Eve, we find the second part of the story where Adam is considering the animals for companionship. We find that in verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper for him. So in scene one, we found that Adam recognizes, God recognizes too, that, that it's not good that he's alone. And scene two, we have Adam's search in the animal kingdom for a friend. But among the creatures God made, there was none suitable to provide the depth of companionship that the man needed. As Adam is beholding each animal, as he is interacting with each animal, he's realizing None of them are going to be the close friend, the, the helper who is fit for him that he needs. In our society, it is becoming very common for people to become confused in this matter of needing human companionship. And, and we would even say over and above the companionship of a pet. It's common today that people would choose to invest more in dogs or cats than in people. And now don't get me wrong, this is not an anti-pet sermon. That's not what you're going to hear here. We have a, a dog that we love very much and pets can be a real blessing to us from the Lord. It's good for us to, to, to take care of an animal. It's even good for children to learn how to take care of something by maybe having a pet of their own. But in our culture, this this is sort of run amok in a lot of ways where, especially in cities, there are many people who are choosing to have a fellowship, you might say, with a pet over and above engaging with, in community with other, with other people. It is becoming common for people to neglect their need for close human community, filling their need for companionship with a pet instead. Now, God has a good purpose for every creature. And so, again, it's not an anti-pet sermon. But there is no comparison between the fellowship that you can have with a person versus the fellowship or companionship that you can have with a pet. One of the interesting articles that I read this week cited the results of a survey among people who have chosen to have pets instead of having children. 
And this is a trend, especially in cities today. Um, Our family of four did some traveling in the past year, went to London and went to some big cities, and, and we have four children, and people would look at us like we were from Mars sometimes, being in a city with a large family, because if you ever actually notice, you would almost never see a large family walking around a city or on the BART or on the uh, public transit or something along those lines. And, and part of the reason for that is that people would choose pets instead of having children. And the, the survey was interesting. It gave some reasons why people would make such a choice. And a lot of it boiled down to expense. That people would say, well, uh, children are, are more expensive to care for, and they would probably think of this more in the financial sense, but, but I can't help but think that, that maybe it's even more so in the relational, emotional sense that children are more expensive than caring for a dog or a cat. Now, it is true that a human relationship will be far more emotionally expensive than your relationship with your dog or your cat. It will be far more demanding upon you than a relationship with a dog or a cat. But there's no creature, that, there's no other creature that's made in God's image, which means that even in a perfect world, relationships between people are more complex and more life-giving than relationships with other creatures. Again, even in a perfect world, even in the Garden of Eden, Adam was seeing there's something lacking still from this relationship that he would have with the other creatures, and he was longing for a deeper, fuller connection to something else that God would make. And so next comes the great passage where the Lord creates Eve and brings her to Adam, and then he responds saying in verse Verses 23 and 24, some of the most important passages in the scriptures about who humanity is and how we are made. This at last, says Adam of Eve, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in just a few words, the Lord teaches us that man and woman are similar but different. Adam first recognizes Eve's similarity to him. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Then he recognizes that she was taken out of his flesh. She was separated from him. And that difference between man and woman is of course, experienced in our lives. It's seen all throughout the Bible. It's, it's seen really also earlier in the passage where, where um, right in the first verse that we read, that there, that there was no suitable helper who would, was a fit for him. And the Hebrew word for fit could be translated as opposite but corresponding. That Adam finally had a suitable helper who was different than him, but corresponding to him, that would fit with him. If we were to start reading this morning at Genesis 1 verse 1, we would see that the Lord, in doing his work of creation, is dividing into pairs and 
assigning a purpose to each pair. That is one of the themes of Genesis 1 and 2, is God making pairs of things that complement one another. The heavens and the earth, light and darkness, day and night, sun and moon. If you were to reread Genesis 1, just looking for the pairs, they would leap off the page at you. And then here we have God making another complementary pair, male and female. They are separated from one another while they, they remain the same in some ways, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. They are both made in the image of God, but yet they are separated from one another. And then right away after that we find, and then there's a reunion. And then the two become one flesh. What significance can we see in this passage from Eve being made out of Adam's rib? Um, There's really no improving on Matthew Henry's teaching on that matter that Matthew Henry taught so wonderfully in the, the commentary on the whole Bible that women were created from the rib of the man to be beside him, not from his head to top him, nor from his feet to be trampled by him, from under his arm to be protected by him, near to his heart to be loved by him. What wonderful teaching from Matthew Henry about how the complementary pair of male and female work together in the institution of marriage. So this is the Christian doctrine of marriage. We find it in Genesis chapter 2, that the Lord has made a helper fit for the man, and that is the woman. And in marriage, the two become one flesh that God said, I will make a helper who fits with him. And the two will become one flesh. We cannot overemphasize that, that simple phrase, the two becoming one flesh as at the core of the doctrine, of uh, the Christian doctrine of, of marriage. So with this definition of marriage, other marriage arrangements that our culture celebrates are not God's design. Two men being married to one another. Two women being married to one another. They cannot be one flesh. The two cannot become one flesh. And so therefore, even calling it a marriage is is a misnomer. Those who reject the Bible's teaching on marriage spend so much time arguing about the six passages in the Scripture's that explicitly condemn homosexual behavior. There's so much attention given to those six passages in the Bible, and and rightfully so at at various points uh, in conversations about same-sex attraction and same-sex marriage. But those passages, while they are important, even if those six passages weren't in the Bible, we would have all we need for our theology of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. We would have all we need for understanding what marriage is meant to be with this this very simple teaching that the sacred institution of marriage is between a man and woman who are designed by God to fit together. That the two would become one flesh. Marriage is where two become one flesh. It is impossible for two men to become one flesh. It is impossible for two women to to become one flesh, both in the sense of sexual union and in the sense of producing children. 
in the same way that, that the gospel itself is simple and is memorable and, and easy to share, so the Christian doctrine of marriage is actually quite simple and, and easy to remember. The two shall become one flesh. And so, more than two people cannot become one flesh. Therefore, ruling out polygamy. Two people of the same sex cannot become one flesh. Therefore, ruling out the possibility of homosexual marriage. So when we think about or talk about same-sex marriage, it's not because we're opposed to something as Christians or we're just against things, but, but think of it in terms of what we are for. That we are opposed to that sinful practice because it's against God's design of what marriage could be or should be. Marriage was beautifully designed by God. Our bodies made male and female are fearfully and wonderfully made and the gift of sex in marriage is powerful in how it unites a man and woman together. That's what we are for. It's not just that we're against certain things in our culture, but, but hopefully you would walk away from a message like this and be grateful to receive a positive Christian theology of marriage that too amazingly can become one flesh. And this is good in God's sight. So then, the passage concludes with a description of the newly married couple. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Were not ashamed. So rather than getting hung up on their physical nakedness, the teaching here is that they were glad and unashamed to be intimately known by one another that they were together, they, were, they had intimate knowledge of each other and were unashamed. In the next chapter, we'll see that this does not last long, that after they sin, they desire to be covered up, they desire to flee away from God, and certainly there would have been some shame that they would have had in um, relation to one another as well after they sin. And so we can see both in Genesis 2 and 3 and in other parts of the Bible that nakedness is a symbol of vulnerability. And this is a theme really all throughout the scriptures. Um, our women's Bible study right now is working their way through the book of Hosea and, and one of the verbs that Hosea uses as a euphemism for sex is to know. Sometimes um, uh, even people in secular culture know that that's how the Bible sometimes refers to uh, sexual activity is to know one another, to have intimate knowledge of, um, of one another. And that principle is seen also in the garden. That they are, are naked, that they are known by one another and not ashamed. So throughout this whole passage, starting at the first verse of what we read all the way to the end now, we've seen that there is an increasing intimacy between uh, Adam and Eve. First, Adam was alone. And then he sees that no animal is fit to be a companion for him. And then Eve comes to him and the two become one flesh. And then Adam and Eve know one another in the fullest sense. They are naked together and have no shame. They have nothing to hide. As we think about concluding our study of this passage, 
let's recognize that here in Genesis, once again, we find a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. You might say, well, how does that work exactly? Well, consider that people were created to be known and to be unashamed. That this is the good state of humanity in the garden before sin, is that Adam and Eve would truly know one another and would not be ashamed. So that this, this isn't just the sense that we were made to be known by other people and to know other people, but, but every person in this world has an intrinsic sense that they need to be known by God and they need to know God. And we'll see in weeks ahead how sin causes us to flee from God, to cover up instead of welcoming his knowledge of us. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, marriage is like a parable for our relationship with God. So not only do male and female display the love between Christ and the church, but this little description of Adam and Eve as being naked and unashamed should make us all ask ourselves, do I live this way in a spiritual sense in the sight of God? Do I live in this way knowing God sees all of me? Every thought. Psalm 139 says, He knows the words that we would speak before they're even formed in our mouths. That He saw us in the secret place while He was creating us. Do you live this way in a spiritual sense before God of being unashamed? Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So could you be completely known by God and unashamed? There's only one way, and that is through Christ. To be clothed with Christ would enable you to have a relationship with God, knowing that God knows everything about you and that you would be unashamed. Why? Because your sin is covered by the blood of Christ. Because you're clothed with Christ. So we who are separated from our sin from God are reunited to him through Christ. And so marriage in Genesis chapter 2 is this beautiful picture of something being separated, the woman from the man, and then a reunion happening in marriage. That's so much of a parable of what's about to come, that, that we would be separated from God because of sin, exiled from the garden, and yet in Christ we are reunited to him. So when we read about the marriage feast of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19, as we did to start the service, we would say, thanks be to God that I would be reunited to God through the blood of the Lamb so that I might be with God and be unashamed, having been forgiven of my sin. So a Christian marriage will be like a living parable of how God gives grace to sinners and restores us to himself restores us even to one another so that we can know one another and be known by each other and be unashamed. A Christian marriage points people forward to the wedding of Christ and the church. A Christian marriage is full of grace, of forgiveness, of, of holiness, and, and protecting that relationship so that it would be a pure relationship. And brothers and sisters, we can give thanks to God that we, who are not made to be alone, can live in community with God and with one another through 
our union with Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, we pray that you would bind us together, that you would bind us to yourself through Christ, that we would have union with you in the fullest spiritual sense right now through your Spirit. We pray, God, that you would give union, that you would give close, intimate fellowship for all of the married couples of our congregation, that they would know one another, husbands and wives, knowing each other, being known by each other. Lord, we pray that you would make each marriage an arena for grace to be displayed so that there would not be shame dividing husband from wife, but that there would be spiritual intimacy in this community of husband and wife that you have designed. God, we pray that you would give us all, married or unmarried, an, an increasingly enjoyable engagement with community, because it is not good that we would be alone, but you have provided, through Christ, a community for us to belong in. Lord, we pray that we would receive the call to belong in community with gratitude, and that we, each of us, would do the work of engaging with community, growing in relationship with one another, so that we would bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand now as we prepare our, to sing our song of response, Bind Us Together. Let's stand and sing. Bye. 